This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, ultra-processed foods and their link to depression. Cutting down on medical waste for the good of the planet. But first, a tour through some of the big health news from the last week. Norman, here's a phrase I never thought I'd say on the radio. Luxury ketamine clinics? They're a thing in the US. Uh, Ketamine is gaining traction as a treatment for depression. We've talked about this a little bit in the past. But what's happening in the States is telling us about ongoing concerns about psychedelics as tools for mental health therapy. Yeah, it's questionable whether you can call ketamine and psychedelics. Some people would. But ketamine, we've had on the health report because the, the Black Dog Institute is doing research in this, in this drug. It's used as a painkiller and sedative. Um, ambulances carry, often carry ketamine to kill pain. Um, but it's also been shown to be an antidepressant, although work at the Black Dog would say there's still work to be gone, done to prove its effectiveness. But essentially, entrepreneurs in the United States have opened these luxury ketamine clinics, or the supposedly luxury ketamine clinics, and um, to try and make money out of them. And they haven't made as much money as they thought they'd make, and they've been trying alternatives, and they're going bust one after the other. What does this tell us about what might happen? I mean, the US health system is really different to Australia. I think no one's, uh, that doesn't come as a surprise to anyone. But we have spoken a lot about, you said ketamine's not a psychedelic, but we have spoken a lot about the sorts of things that are starting to pop up here. Is this a warning sign to Australian would-be entrepreneurs? Well, um, clearly the psychedelic industry is developing as we speak. Psychiatrists are being trained. Next week on the Health Report, we've got a special feature on attention deficit hyperactivity disorder done by Angela Voipierre, um, describing her experience with clearly what are highly entrepreneurial clinics treat, treat, well, trying to diagnose and treat uh, people with ADHD and, um, and costing a lot of money. And clearly they're making a lot of money. Um, now, the question is, how much is psychedelic therapy going to cost? Jeff Thompson, in his, in his background briefing on this a few weeks ago, and we've spoken about this, had a psychiatrist quoting $20,000, maybe more, for a course of psychedelic therapy, which includes the drug and psychotherapy. And um, if there's money to be made, entrepreneurs will get in. And although we're supposedly different from the United States, private equity is bought into cardiac care in Australia, radiotherapy care in Australia, cancer care in Australia, and, um, and indeed IVF. So you, are we that different? Let's see. Mm, it does raise a big, some big questions about health inequality and uh, Angela's story next week is definitely worth a listen. And Norman, we've been talking for quite some time now on coronavirus. In fact, we've got a whole podcast about it, but specifically about how effective COVID-19 vaccines are. And a new study has pulled together a huge number of older Australians and quantified just how protective vaccination is. Yeah. And one of the features of this study, this is probably more for the geeks in the audience, is is the way they've done the study, which uh, we're, we've really been protective of data in Australia and people guard our data really closely, don't want to share it, don't want to link it. But they've managed uh, to bring together data from a lot of different sources to see what happened to about 3.8 million Australians last year in 2022 um, who were over 65 and what and to be able to relate what vaccines they had versus whether or not they died. 
And what they've and they divided the year into two, and we cover this in more detail on CoronaCast this week. What they did, they divided the year into two, um, January through to May and June through to November, where the first half was BA1, BA2, second half was BA4, 5. And what they showed, basically, the headline was that in the first six months of, next, of last year, having a third dose compared to a second dose which was more, more than six months before that, was 93% effective at uh, reducing the risk of death. And if compared to a person who'd had a second dose six, more, six months or more before that, that dropped down to 34% protective. It just shows you the dramatic effect of the booster. And in fact, in the second half of the year, and because of the new the new subvariants which had got around the immune system a bit, the protection against deaths was down a bit at 84%, but still pretty high. But the effect of not having had your booster for for a while didn't drop you down as low. And the the, the researchers put that down to um, having had COVID-19 infection. But as we know, there are still lots of people in hospital with COVID-19, but I'm giving away everything we're going to be talking about on this week's, not everything, part of what we're talking about on this week's CoronaCast. That's it. You can find it on Wednesday. And the World Health Organization has put out new guidance about artificial sweeteners. I don't drink a lot of soft drink, Norman, but when I do, I generally choose the diet version. It must be the health report getting to me. I hear so much about how sugar's bad for you. It just feels like the better option. Well, it may or may not be. There's been a suspicion for quite some time that artificial sweeteners aren't what they're made up to, made out to be. Well, yes, indeed. And so the WHO has pulled together all that available evidence. They've crunched it. Uh, it's not just artificial sweeteners. It's kind of, they call them non-sugar sweeteners. Not all of them are artificial, but they're saying that they're not going to make you any healthier. And the thing behind this is I'm not sure anyone's really eating artificial sweeteners thinking they're a health food, but we do know quite definitively added sugars in food, not great for us. They contribute to things like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dental disease, higher body weights. These are all things we've discussed ad nauseum before on the health report. But the WHO is saying that non-sugar sweeteners shouldn't be used for weight loss or to reduce your risk of disease. So let's put this into uh, an Australian context with someone who spends a lot of time looking at the ingredients in foods and their labels, Alexandra Jones from the George Institute. Welcome, Alexandra. Nice to be here. So what does the WHO guidance tell us that we didn't already know? Yeah, well, like you said, it comes against this context of a lot of uh, governments worldwide moving to do things against sugar. And what we're seeing is a shift towards more products with artificial sweeteners. And I guess what WHO has done is look at, are we just shifting to another problem in the long term? Uh, they reviewed all the existing evidence. Um, they found some short-term randomised controls trials that said there might there might be some help for weight loss. But in the long term, they said they didn't find any evidence that it helped with weight control, nor did it reduce your risk of getting other diet-related conditions like type 2 diabetes. Was there any risk in consuming these non-sugar sweeteners? Like, do they cause disease? Yeah, well, that's what they're saying is they see associations um, with things like heart disease and diabetes in long term or weight gain. Like many areas of nutrition science, uh, they they rated some of the evidence as low certainty. Um, so they're not the sorts of trials that would be gold standard that we want to see because they are quite difficult to do those trials in the long term. Um, but I guess what they did is also weigh this up a bit um, 
not having sweeteners with um, the benefits. So they, they weigh sort of the potential benefits of not using them and said, look, there's no downside of not using them. They're not an essential part of the diet. They don't offer any nutritional value. And there are way better ways to reduce your free sugar intake, most notably just eating less sweetened food and drinks. Right. So what is sort of the guidance in Australia around this at the moment? No one's sort of going, eat these, they're good for you. <laughs> no. Well, the industry might be. I think that they have been marketed um, for weight loss for years. I mean, diet drinks, it's in the name, that it's sort of implied that it will help you with weight loss. I think from a policy perspective in Australia, um, where we're looking, we don't, for example, tax sugary drinks yet, but many countries do. And one side effect of those taxes is that they have encouraged um, a switch to sweeteners in, in countries like the UK. So I think it is a challenge for us um, thinking about policies if we don't want to just encourage that switch and we really want people to switch to things like water instead. Um, so in Australia, we are looking at improving sugar labelling, for example, and we might say what we want to do is make sure that by labelling added sugars on the label, we don't just switch um, companies to substitute that with sweeteners. Um, I think one country that's trying to address that is Mexico. So now if you um, put artificial sweeteners in, your product actually has to have a warning on the front that says, warning contains sweeteners not recommended for children. Right, because at the moment it's pretty easy to look at the back of a packet and see, well, it's actually, we've talked before on the health report about how hard it is to see sh sugar, but it's a lot easier to see teaspoons of sugar than it maybe is to sort of see uh, the quantities of non-sugar sweeteners in there. If you look at the nutrition panel, for example, you'll see the amount of grams of sugar, but these substances are, you know, in tiny amounts because they're thousands of times sweeter than sugar. So they, you don't see them in that nutrition panel. You'd have to search the ingredients list and you'd have to recognise what the sweetener is. In the WHO report, they report an increase in cardiovascular disease mortality, an increase in cardiac events, increases in type 2 diabetes. Where is this effect coming from if there's not sugar in the food? Is it, is it because of the sweeteners themselves or is it perhaps because of like behavioural things that you end up doing because you're like, well, I had Diet Coke, so I'll have this instead? Yeah, they're not. They point to a number of potential sort of mechanisms that, that and say that we need more evidence. I mean, there's some evidence of changes to the microbiome, for example. Um, there's some evidence around continuing preference for sweetness, um, and so they they encourage us, you know, to keep craving sweetness, or that we maybe consume calories elsewhere in the diet because. Um, they don't satiate us. So they do say, look, we need more evidence, um, but they're the sorts of plausible mechanisms. And then there's also um, a lot of animal studies that they're doing. So they call for more evidence, but I guess it's a kind of precautionary um, guidance here to governments. If you're going to make policies that shift us away from sugar, you're really going to have to think hard to make sure we don't just sub it out with what could be another long-term problem. Yeah, I know that your work focuses a lot on policy and a lot on, uh, you know, the market effects of policies and how that might sort of encourage food uh, manufacturers to behave in different ways, like you said. For the average shopper slash food eater slash drinker, what should they make of, of directions like this from the WHO? Yeah, I think it ties in with what you said, that most people don't think that they are healthy. So I think people already know in their heart that they're not getting a really healthy product. I mean, artificial sweeteners are, by definition, only in really highly processed products um, because they're an additive. And so they're, they're in those things that 
we're really trying to shift people away from in general. I think if you are a full sugar Coke drinker, you might still think of switching as a sort of way to help ease you off um, in the long term. But I think if you if you don't have a diet drink habit, um, don't pick one up now. I guess that would be my takeaway. Fair enough. Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Alexandra Jones is a public health lawyer and researcher at the George Institute for Global Health. This is The Health Report. And speaking of things like soft drinks and artificial sweeteners, more on ultra-processed foods. It's a term that's become pretty well known in recent years. It conjures to mind things like lollies, puffed salty snacks and, of course, soft drinks. But it's actually broader than that. It can include things you might not immediately think of as being unhealthy, like microwave meals, flavoured yogurts and protein bars as well. There's pretty convincing evidence that they're not healthy for your body. But what's emerging indicates that they're not good for your mind either. An Australian study has found a link between ultra-processed foods and your risk of depression. The lead author of the study was Melissa Lane, who joins us now. Now, Melissa, this link has been suggested before, but yours was the first to look at it in an Australian context. Yeah, that's right. It's the first in the world to look at an Australian sample and an Australian sample that was sizable as well. So we had 23 or over 23,000 individuals. So yeah, 23,000 people over 15 years or so. That's massive data to be working with. How did you actually tease out the link between someone's diet and their risk of depression? So we looked at their um, habitual dietary intake over the preceding 12 months. So that's what they were eating from day to day um, over the 12 months before they were uh, enrolled into the study. Um, And then we classified their food intake as ultra-processed or non-ultra-processed. And then we looked at their link with depression 15 years later. And what we found is that people whose diet was made up of uh, 30% or more of ultra-processed food had a 23% increased risk of depression. That's a pretty big increase. Um, When you were looking at the sample size this this large, were you able to sort of go, oh, these people are eating the ultra-processed foods, which we all kind of recognise as being unhealthy or things that people might have mistakenly thought of as being good choices? Probably both of those things. So, yes, we were, you know, the dietary intake did include typical things that we would consider to be junk food or ultra-processed, but also included other things like, yeah, your flavoured yogurts, your diet soft drinks, these are low in calories, Um, so both. And what's the direction happening here? We hear a lot in science reporting about correlation not equaling causation. We've got people with depression, we've got people eating ultra-processed foods. Uh, If you're depressed is perhaps ultra-processed foods just an easier option? You can grab it and eat it? Or can we be sure that the foods are actually contributing to the risk of depression? So we have evidence from across the world to suggest that there might be this bi-directional association between ultra-processed foods and depression. But to try and get at that, we excluded people who were taking medication for depression and anxiety at the start of the study. So that then suggests that those people who were left didn't have depression at the start of the study and then went on to develop it later on because it was linked with the intake in ultra-processed food. What about other things like maybe someone's smoking status or their income or education level, which could all play a role? 
Yeah, so we accounted for those factors. Um, so smoking, physical activity, education, marriage, the number of people in their household. In, in terms of science and epidemiology, what we do is we uh, statistically control for those things. So essentially it just makes people um, at the start of the study to use a um, an example, we try and get people at the start of the study starting the race um, at the same level. So those factors are accounted for. Have you got any idea of what might be causing this? Like if you've taken all those other things into account, then what's actually changing then? Yeah, so our study didn't look at that, but there are good um, studies from, again, across the world, and these are randomised control trials, looking at the effect of um, compounds that are commonly in ultra-processed foods, so things like emulsifiers, artificial sweeteners or non-caloric uh, sweeteners, and they have a, a causal effect on changes to the gut microbiome, and they change the gut microbiome in such a way um, to make it uh, pro-inflammatory. And we we also know that if you look at the fibre in ultra-processed foods, which is typically very low, if there's not enough fibre in the diet, the gut microbiome and the gut microbiota um, eat the only food that's inside, which is the mucus that lines and protects the gut wall, which is also uh, linked with changes to inflammation. And we know also that inflammation is a big driver in depression. So we think that these um, additives might be playing a role. For lots of people, ultra-processed foods are a really important part of the food supply. They're, they're shelf stable, they're affordable. How do we address this without demonising the people who eat this and actually kind of provide them with a better alternative? Yeah, so I think um, as consumers, we need to arm ourselves with the right information to make informed decisions. And that's sort of step one. It's unfair to leave it up to us as consumers because it's not necessarily an us problem. I think it's a food systems problem. And that's where we need to really regulate the ultra processed food industry. And that would include a number of things like taxing of these products, front of package, uh, warning labels, marketing restrictions, particularly to vulnerable people such as children um, or adolescents. And also we need to get these products out of um, learning environments and medical institutions and particularly mental health institutions. Going back to the individual though, I think we can make choices and we can make simple swaps. You know, an example would be swapping out flavoured yogurt for uh, something like plain yogurt and adding in you know, like your fruits, so you can get frozen fruit or fresh fruit to, to sweeten it up. Um, I don't think we need to overcomplicate it um, too much. But like you say, it's that in concert with big policy changes that make uh, the food system more equal as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I think those two things need to work in tandem. We do have the ability to, to make changes ourselves, but we also really need to be pushing governments to make bigger changes to the ultra-processed food industry. Dr Melissa Lane from Deakin University's Food and Mood Centre. If healthcare were a country, it'd be the fifth highest greenhouse gas emitter. That's an extraordinary statistic, according to a paper published by Australian researchers, looking at the enormous challenge of how to make healthcare greener. And that includes the enormous volume of waste produced by plastic products that are only used once. And then there's the physical wastes and emissions generated just by unnecessary or avoidable care. Think PPE, intravenous sets, catheters, water contamination with excreted drugs, by excreted drugs, and even the water consumed to wash hospital linen. 
The study zeroed in on the environmental impact of heart disease care, almost as a case study. The lead author is an old friend of the Health Report, in fact, a one-time Health Report producer, Alex Barrett, who's Professor of Public Health at the University of Sydney. We take no credit in uh, your now being a public, Professor of Public Health. Alex, you did it all on your own, you <laughs> Thanks, Norman. It's been a while. Now, Alex, just to explain, this was a, a review of the scientific literature on the environmental impact of any kind of cardiovascular care, from prevention through to hospital treatment and cardiac surgery. Yes, that's what we did. As you said, it's a bit of a, um, a case study to just have a look at the environmental impacts of healthcare. Were there many studies? We screened over 1,500 titles and abstracts, but we wound up with only 12 studies to include. And did that stretch from prevention through to treatment or really just focused on the big, consumer, the big consumables in hospitals? It did stretch all the way through. So there were a number of studies that, as you mentioned, looked at the concentrations of cardiovascular drugs, so blood pressure-lowering pills and cholesterol-lowering pills in waterways, so prevention. But it also looked at, there was a study that looked at diagnostic tests for heart disease. And then there were a number of treatment studies that looked at everything from uh, monitoring pacemakers through to admissions to hospital for cardiac surgery and even two studies that looked at reducing the environmental impacts of cardiac surgery. So what did you find? What were the findings? I think the message that comes across most clearly is that there is a very significant environmental impact of healthcare, something that we haven't really been generally aware of, but that there are lots of things that we can do about it to reduce it. And in general, we can do that while safeguarding quality of care. So we don't need to reduce quality of care. There's no trade-off that has to be made there because all the studies that looked at it were able to demonstrate not only reduced environmental impacts, but other benefits, which included health benefits in some cases, and in almost every case, financial like cost savings as well. So give me an example where there were health benefits from waste reduction. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'm glad you asked. Um, so one of my favourite studies was a small study that was done in cardiac surgery and they were interested to see whether they could reduce the waste from the circuits that are used for the bypass machine. So when the blood comes out of the heart, when they're doing open heart surgery, it's pumped around through long tubes and then pumped back into the patient. At the end so basically of the a procedure, machine that acts like your lungs. Exactly. And at the end of the procedure, normally those tubes, those plastic tubes, which are contaminated with blood, have to go for incineration because they're regulated medical waste. But what they did was to rinse the tubes with saline, um, sterile saline. They were able to clean the tubes so that the tubes then could be disposed of in just standard municipal waste. So there was a saving in cost, but also a saving in carbon emissions from not having to incinerate. But they were also able to salvage 240 mils of blood from each procedure that could then be used for transfusion. What about reuse of plastic? I mean, the, the industry, the medical device industry, likes selling stuff that's single use because they get to mm. sell another for the next operation. Uh, were there many examples of reusing items that were designed for single use? Um, 
I don't recall any art studies that were specific, specifically on reuse. There have been uh, studies done in other fields in medicine where, for example, you can have um, reusable uh, gowns in ICUs instead of single-use ones. That ha that I know there was one study actually done in Australia that showed that that was safe, did not increase the infection risk, and obviously has an environmental benefit. But in this particular review, there there wasn't a study like that, but there was a study that looked at whether they could reduce the amount of um, PPE, so personal protective equipment sets that were used for every patient when they came into hospital. And by a simple change to their procedures, they were able to reduce the number of sets of PPE from 13 sets per patient down to one which resulted in financial savings and uh, 70,000 pieces of single-use plastic they estimated over one year could be saved. What about um, what's increasingly been called low-value care? So low-value care is where it might be the care that's done at the wrong time in the wrong place or too much care or too little care uh, um, over investigating or over intervening. My favourite one for this on waste is colostomy bags. Everybody goes on, well, how do you get rid of colostomy bags? That's a huge plastic waste issue. Well, if you actually got the 60% of Australians who would rather die or have chemotherapy than actually have bowel cancer screening, you might actually reduce the risk, the, the amount of colostomy bags around because you might have fewer people having late stage bowel cancer diagnosed. I mean, th examples like that. And in cardiac care, um, moving to stents with all the waste that's associated with that when you could have medications. I mean, did, did mm. anybody assess this low-value care and how much waste is generated by that? Uh, so in this particular review, there was one study that tried to reduce low-value biochemical tests in patients coming into wards for cardiac surgery, and they were able to do that. So they reduced... Uh, by 50% the number of um, expensive panel tests for biochemical tests and instead were able to use, use just a, a much simpler, lower-cost test that looks specifically only for um, electrolyte disturbance instead of a big panel of stuff. And by doing that, they were able to save 10 tonnes of CO2 emissions in one year just from making that small change in their ward. But more generally, yes, we have been looking at that and estimated that um, about 8,000 kilograms, so eight kilotons of CO2 emissions are released from healthcare in Australia that is low-value healthcare. So we know that low-value healthcare is about one-third of all care that's done. So it has an enormous carbon footprint. And I guess one of the most amazing things, I think, in this whole area is that if you think about healthcare globally, if global healthcare was a country, it would be the fifth largest emitter of carbon dioxide on the planet. So it has healthcare, while being necessary and desirable in many, many ways, it also has this really significant environmental footprint. And a good cull of low value care would go a long, long way to reducing that towards net zero. 
And have you, an, an increasing push around the country is the electrification of hospitals, which sounds funny to people when you say it, well, you know, we'll get electric lights and so on, but they're massive consumers of gas for sterilisation and heating. And, uh, and in some states, they're building new hospitals without actually being all electric. Do we know where we stand with the electrification of hospitals? really important to do um, and it's really important as you say that new hospitals that get built um, are without gas. I think hospitals are really onto this and many hospitals and health districts are onto the process of converting to renewable energies and that's really really important. However, the vast majority of the footprint of healthcare is actually from, not from buildings, energy um, and, um, and waste within the building like water waste. It's actually from all this other stuff, all the kind of daily tests, drugs, devices, all the day-to-day -day business of healthcare because the carbon emissions are embedded in the supply chains. So about 60% of healthcare is actually coming from what clinicians do every day, and that's the part that really needs to change. Alex, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Norman. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Alex Barrett is Professor of Public Health at the University of Sydney, and that's the Health Report for this week. We'll catch you again next week. We will. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.